Nice to meet you. <sighs> I feel really strange when I meet people and they say nice to meet you. I feel I should hug them or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just like. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But there you go. This is life. Are you home in, in England? Because I hear yes. that you also stay sometime in China. Yeah, no, I'm in England now. Very English. You are Dr. Benjamin Zephaniah, and you are one of our heroes. A man of, well, you are. You are someone who I have known about for a long time. You know, I'm from uh, actually one of your old stomping grounds. I grew up in Stamford Hill. Right. Four older brothers, one of whom uh, really did think of you as a hero. He was very much into dub, into the sound system, mm. uh, culture, and uh, he loved your dub poetry, yours and Linton Crazy Johnson in particular. Mm. When I watched the South Bank show, I can understand sort of looking back over your life. You can talk about that. Please. Right. Well, it's really interesting because I watched the South Bank show and a couple of days ago. I mean, I didn't know what they were going to because we filmed a lot more. So I didn't know what they were going to put in, what they were going to take out. I was surprised how much footage they got from when I was young. I, I'm watching, I'm going, where did they get that from? Where, what's that? Is that me, you know? And the other thing was, I was surprised at like, how angry I came over. I mean, <laughs> but I was angry. And the thing is, I think this is very important. I'm still angry now. But I have this outlet for poetry and my novels or whatever. You know, I can go on Christian time now. I can reach people. And I realise that that's the difference. I don't think I'm less angrier. I did something the other day. A, a woman in the BBC contacted me through another woman and said they wanted to talk to me about gang culture, knowing my life story. They wanted to talk to me what it's like being in a gang, um, you know, how young people deal with their aggression and things like this. So I had a talk with the producer on the phone and then I never heard anything from her. And then I spoke to the contact. I said, you know, is this project still on? And she said, well, no. The lady said, when you spoke to her, you were too nice. <laughs> right? So she expects me to be the angry black man, you know what I mean? Oh, you know, really? she, she expects me to be angry and cursing down white people and stuff like that, you know? Mm. And that's a terrible stereotype. Mm. I mean, I was like that and there are some people like that, but who I am now, I still have that anger. She didn't agree with anything I said. I talked about the way we were being policed. I talk about the way that some people don't give us opportunities and don't, you know, the stereotype is that we don't aspire too much, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that we know about. And, she, you know, she was in agreement with that, but I just wasn't angry enough. Um, and she really expected you to be like that on a first meeting over the phone? On the telephone. You know what I mean? On the telephone. I have to say, it's usually people in the media that seem surprised that they get on with me quite easily, you know? I know that I get on with people uh, quite easily. I, Back in the day, I used to say to people, and I've done it with some people, depending on my work, I say, you know, spend a day with me, spend a couple of days with me. And they'll see that I'm talking to, you know, the head of a state in the Caribbean in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, in the afternoon, I'm talking to a homeless person in Charing Cross, yeah. you know, and then I'm talking to a footballer. And then I'm talking to somebody just trying to stop them taking their own life. I go, gosh, you're, you're here like this, you know? You, um, and it's because I just, get on with people I'm, I'm not interested in 
forcing my personality on somebody. I'm not, you know, if I want to change them, I want to change them in, intellectually. I don't want to change them by force. The Guardian article that came out just in July, where you talked about violence, in that article, they did say that you had the kind of personality where you didn't try to be liked and yet throughout your life people have sought you out like for example in the South Bank show Melvin Bragg was even impressed that Nelson Mandela he had heard that you had taken part in the concert to free him and free South Africa back in the 80s but he sought you out I love that story that he wanted to meet with you at 6am and you were like 6am, I don't get up at 6am, and he said, well, I'm meeting with Margaret Thatcher at 8, and I want to be brief. When there was a concert for him at the Royal Albert Hall, he requested that you host it. Yes. Me and another poet called Nazwaki Mbuli, who was a South African poet, and they said that he was like Benjamin Zephna, and I was like him. We were both kind of street dog poets, and we both knew each other, so we hosted it together, because Nelson Mandela said that we were his two favourite poets. And Mazwaki also performed on his inauguration. I mean, that was a real honour. And when I think about where I come from, I mean, the physical, the cultural, the economic place that I come from, to be able to meet with people like Nelson Mandela, to have him find me, you know, ask for me, request me, it's really special. And I think I've lived through very interesting times because there's some great people and I've managed to meet them, you know. Um, Sometimes when they're gone, I realise... Gosh, I knew Bob Marley. I knew Nelson Mandela. Yeah. Yeah, him you did seek out. Marley you did Yeah, seek yeah, out. yeah. Now the but thing, the, he gave you something even better in return, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, they're all inspirational people. Yeah. And it's really funny because when you started and you, t- t- I can't remember exactly what you said about me, a hero or something. I mean, I don't see myself that way. I mean, I see myself just as a, like a black writer from Britain, from Birmingham, who's struggling to kind of do what I do. But it's good that a lot of people connect with it and identify with it. And I think what happens is when you get to my age, I'm almost 63 now. I don't realise until people speak to me that I've been part of the making of black British history. So I only meet people now that say to me, I was in school and I really didn't like school. I didn't like English. and I didn't like poetry. And then this teacher come along and said, well, why don't you read this poet, Benjamin Zephaniah? He's not even American. He's British. And Mm-hmm. They said, I read it, and then I heard you talking Jamaican in the poetry, and I went, wow, you know? <laughs> and then I went on to read your novels and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, I didn't sit down and go, well, you know, Benjamin, darling, I'm going to make history, I'm going to do this. No, I was just doing what, I, what I'm doing. And, and we're all pioneering in our own different ways, you know? I mean, the, the blacklist is, is pioneering, because, you know, you're looking at what we are doing now and the achievements we are doing now and kind of marking it. And all of what we're doing is really important because there's a very simple reason, I think. There's lots of reasons, but the most basic reason is very simple. If we don't do it, somebody's going to do it for us and then we're going to complain about the way they've done it. (laughs) You know, or it won't get done at all. Absolutely. Right, so we have to do it. And that's when I started writing poetry. I mean, it was just like I wanted to voice my own opinion. I remember reading a, a report on mental health from the 70s. And it was talking about the way that black people kiss their teeth and all this kind of stuff. And it was very negative. And it was written by this, the, the man's name was there. And then underneath it said, an expert in black people. <laughs> an expert in black people. You know, there's a, there's a white guy with a title. Called, I'm black and I'm not even an expert in black people. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? 
must have been a shock. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's an expert in me. But this was a mental health report. This yeah. re these were the kind of reports that were condemning black people to mental health hospitals. So then I said, no, I'm going to do my own poetry and stuff like this. And I always said, um, I remember once I did a poem on television and a bit of commentary afterwards. Again, this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And it said underneath, Benjamin Zeph and I are poet and black community leader. And I was like, I'm not a black community <laughs> leader. I didn't tell them to write that, you know? What we should do is tell our stories, represent ourselves. And many of the things we say that will connect with other people, that's all we can hope for. My experiences as a black man will be close to those of you as a black woman, but they won't be exactly the same. There's some experiences that you have as a black woman I will never have. All I can do is listen to you and make solidarity with you. Um, and that's the best we can do, but we can't leave it to other people. Yeah. That's what I love, what you said to Melvin Bragg, when he said about the political undertones of your poetry. And you said, is it political or are they simply my experiences? And I just thought, yes, I heard something absolutely beautiful. A young American chap said, when I talk about Black Lives Matter and I have a white person come to me and say, Black Lives Matter, don't all lives matter? And he said to her, okay, so would you go to a breast cancer benefit and get up and scream and say, shouldn't this be a benefit for all cancers? What about prostate cancer? Yeah, yeah. And I thought, absolutely, yeah. yes. It's the same thing, isn't it? Mm. This is our experience and yes. we want to talk about it. And what I found interesting about your interview, it was really comprehensive. I made copious notes. I was absolutely riveted. And I, I found it interesting that you said, where did they get all that footage? But at 22 years old, you told your gang that you were going to London to be on television. And yeah. we're 40 years down the line. Yeah. So I think 40 years of TV. <laughs> I mean, you pretty much achieved that. In this day and age of media, social media, the internet, you know, immediate access to footage, it's absolutely essential to our living history and our recent history. And what I love about right now, between you, the Life and Rhyme series, the current series in the South Bank show, you, Bernadine Neveristo, Steve McQueen's Small Act series, Idris Elba's In the Long Run comedy series in Sky One, Lenny James's Save Me. This is our time. It's not yes. about the past before, yeah. Yeah. the distant past. It's not yeah. about the future. And I'm a speculative fiction fan. Mm. It's about us right now, a time that has absolutely been forgotten. And I think what I loved was Melvin Bragg, even though he used all the right words, I still think he didn't really quite get it. What, what did you feel the chemistry was between you and he when you were doing that interview? Well, I must say, I mean, I really like Melvin. I've been on a couple of his shows back in the day, his radio shows and things like this. And one of the things I really love about Melvin is that he, I mean, he didn't talk about it in that interview because the interview is not really about him, but he loves the oral tradition. Yeah. And he's written a lot about the old traditions of England, which is very fascinating. And so there's some footage, uh, some photographs, which the public probably haven't seen. I've got them somewhere on a phone somewhere of me and him hogging together. Because <laughs> this happened just before lockdown, we did that filming. 
And then one of the producers said, he never hugs anybody. <laughs> you know, he's talking to you like, like, and you know, we're really close and we're doing this and we're messing about and stuff. He said and, he admired your autobiography. He actually used that word. Yeah, admired. yeah, yeah. yeah. We tried, and he used um, the same words that they used to describe Nelson Mandela, actually. How forgiving you were, despite mm, everything you'd been through. I found it really yeah. interesting. I think the thing about Melvin is that he is, in the real tradition of what, they, what the word means, he's a real intellectual and a Renaissance person which is why I think he could do things like the South Bank show, because it covers such a range of work. Um, when he sits down to interview me, he's genuinely interested, you know, and he's not assuming that he knows everything. He's read what he's read, and he is genuinely trying to get the best out of me so that I can, you know, um, give the answer that kind of enlightens the audience. And at the same time, he's not trying to be, well, I think I just alluded to it really, cool, you know, he knows what's going on, man, you know. He's, he knows that he's a very educated white male yeah. and his experiences are very different to mine. Yeah. And um, he's genuinely interested. And the reason why I know this obviously from my experiences but I had the luxury ones of sitting next to his son and talking I didn't realize till you know we were 10 minutes into a conversation or whatever this is Melvin Bragg's son and then kind of 10 minutes later I met his daughter who came up to me and she was obsessed you know she'd read all my poetry and everything and I thought wow what an interesting family you know I think people okay let me put it like this I had a student once right who um I was talking to my students about writing about your experience and when it comes to writing performance poetry and poetry generally one of the best things you have is your life experience and in my experience the students that struggle the most or let me put it like this most of my students are what we would be called the kind of freaks and the outsiders right most of my students are the gays the blacks all the people that feel they're outside for one reason or another the trans because they want to use their poetry and speak to the world about what, how they feel, you know what I mean? They're not the ones that want to be engineers. <laughs> you know? And I was saying to this to one student, the students that find difficulty in my course are the white male who haven't struggled, born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And as I was saying that, the student was pointing to himself, he went, that's me. He said, anytime I'm in trouble, daddy rescues me with a helicopter. He said, I've never had to think about money. When I came to university, my dad gave me a hundred thousand pounds in my account. Blah 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 blah. You know, and so he said. He said, "What can I write about, Professor?" So I said, "You know, don't try and be black. Don't try and be poor. You know, if you're a straight male, just say you're a straight male. That's it, right? But try and find empathy with these people. Try and listen to the people. You know, try and find some connection with them. Just don't try and be them. And I think that's what Melvin does really well. You know, he's himself." He doesn't shy away from that, but he's interested in you. And I know this, I mean, from words from behind the scenes from his family. If he's going to interview somebody, he's got to do something, and he doesn't like them, he doesn't like this subject, he won't do it. Okay, well, this segues really nicely into the Life and Rhyme series, four-parter, about performance poetry. Yes. So I have a confession to make. I don't like reading poetry. You don't like reading poetry? I don't like reading poetry. Okay. And for a long time, I thought that meant I didn't like poetry. 
<laughs> but yeah. my mum used to have me and my four brothers all around her and she used to read from this little book of Tom Hardy's poetry. I used to love listening to her. But when I tried to read it, I didn't like it. I found it boring and I guess dead. And I loved what you said to Melvin. Well, not, it wasn't to Melvin, it was in the South Bank show, but it was to your students. When you said, when you're performing, try and recapture that emotion that you had when you wrote those words. Because that's what I always felt about performance art. That's what I feel about art, actually. I think, what's the point of going to see art that someone's already painted and it's hung on a wall somewhere where it wasn't created? I don't understand it in this setting without the, the artist here. Turner used to paint in front of an audience. And when I heard you say those words, I'm like, oh my God, this lad gets me. <laughs> you are a perfect example of what poetry really is. For most of human history, poetry has been an oral tradition. It has been a listening and speaking art. When we first started talking, we started to tell stories and we started to embellish them and make them poetic. People sat down around a campfire and somebody did this. We know this. Somebody then came along and kind of added a drum. Somebody went, oh, that's a, that's a sellout. Why are you doing that? And then somebody come along and added a flute thing, you know? And then somebody came along, instead of started speaking, they started singing the words. That's why we in the old tradition think that singing and spoken word and poetry is from the same family. In some languages, there's no different word for the word for singer and poet. It's the same word. A song is just a song poem. And some of the greatest singers will also say that, you know, that, you know, I started with poetry and I just started to sing them. It's not until the 15th century, I'm trying to remember his name now, Johannes, sorry, I can't remember his name, but there's a German guy who invented the printing press. So the 15th century comes along, the printing press is invented. And then suddenly poetry is written down and put on bookshelves. And the educated, clever people have the printing presses and they write this poetry and they make it really difficult and put it on bookshelf. And if you can't decipher this, you're not one of us. Before that, poetry was on the streets, you know, it's in all our homes. So what your condition is actually speaks to what poetry is really about. It's actually the poetry that you get on with, the poetry that you can identify with is actually I hesitate to say the real poetry because all poetry is valued, but it's the first poetry. You said a good poet attracts a good audience. And yes. most audience members are not sitting there saying, impress me. They're saying, touch me, reach me. And I was completely blown away. And so I watched the first episode of Life and Lines and I watched the last episode. I will fill in, I will fill in the two because I absolutely loved it. When I heard about it, I thought it's embarrassing that no one has thought to do this before, yeah. particularly because you have been doing it for 40 years. And there was that sort of renaissance in the, in the 90s with the, the jazz poetry, with films like Love Jones. Mm. And we've all always had poetry slams, you know, live competitions. Zoe Ashton, for example, that young actress, she has been involved. Um, in poetry slams. Yeah. So there has always been a culture yeah. alongside acting and, yeah. you know, the creative industry. What I loved was the setting. I mean, apart from it being in the time of the pandemic, I loved the fact that it was outside because it really had that feeling of everyone just gathering around a campfire yeah. outside. Yeah. 
Yeah. You seemed really joyful in that setting. I was blown away by the talent, not just of the invited guests, but by the audience as well, the passion. <laughs> people came to me with this idea a few years back. I know that people have been suggesting spoken word poetry shows on TV in the past, and nobody's taken it up. We can do, you know, we can have a programme, a music programme or anything, and we can just end with a poet, or we can just have a poet in between. But the whole show, poetry? No, no. And so when Sky took it up, I just thought, this is brilliant, you know. They're taking a risk. They know they're taking a risk, but, you know, they're going for it. And we thought about the formula. We thought about how to, into, how to bring in, you know, open micers, you know, stuff like this. Then when it was suggested that they'd be called Life and Rhymes, I was like, no, that's, my, that's the name of my autobiography. Now, I wasn't against it, but I just thought people will think it's an ego trip by me. But then they had meetings and meetings and meetings, and everybody said, no, this is the name. This is the name. So, okay. Now, I know that there's loads of talent out there. I also know that there was a couple of schools of thought. Some people were saying, well, I'm a little bit nervous. Let me just see how it goes, and then maybe I'll go on the programme. And then some other people, when they're invited, went, yes, of course I want to be there, you know. Originally, it was supposed to be indoors. But because of the pandemic, we had it outdoors. And you're right, the outdoors just kind of add to the atmosphere. I mean, if we do another series, it may be indoors, maybe outdoors, I'm not sure. But it, I actually think, I'm not sure if you've seen this one, the one that's really windy, there's like a storm going on. That one is so atmospheric. It was difficult to do. And when I came off stage, I went, oh, no, that's flopped. And then everybody went, the production team went, no, look for the cameras. It looks beautiful. I mean, people are doing poetry and there's lightning in the background. <laughs> it looks amazing. There's rain falling. It looks almost gothic. But the talent is the talent that drives the show. Everyone is different. It's real diversity without forcing it. It's just natural because that's the way poets are. And I think it's kind of natural for me to present it in a way. I didn't realise, again, until I started meeting people and... I'd get these great poets who are going to perform and then they'd go, oh, such, you're such an inspiration to me. And I go, me? And I realised I'm almost like the grandfather of performance poetry and here are my children. Oh my God. <laughs> How did you select them? Well, actually, I mean, that's not down to me. There's a team of people doing that. But then they mm -hmm. run their names past me and then, you know, I, I listen to them. Some of, most of them I know because I'm just interested in performance poetry anyway. There's nobody that's been rejected. There's nobody that we've looked at and said, oh, no, you know, they're rubbish. Unfortunately, there's one person we wanted to get on who was very sick, couldn't make it. And at one point, we was thinking, shall we film her from home or something like that? And then we thought, no, we don't want to take it out to the space. Oh, you know? Surely there will be future series. Well, that's what we're hoping for, you know. That's what we're hoping for. I think, maybe I hope, that what Sky were doing was just doing a tester to see if it was, you know, if it worked. The format yeah. worked. We know that it worked. As soon as the first one was done, we went, yeah, this is good. The great thing about the poetry audience is that they, they don't really care how you dress, what you look like. Can your words move me? Can they move me emotionally? Can they move me in terms of humour? Can they move me in terms of history? Can they move me in terms of telling your experience? There was a time in the um, 90s when lots of boy bands and girl bands were being manufactured. A company tried to manufacture a poet with a record deal and a big book deal and, you know, it didn't work. The audience just saw through it, you know. You can get on stage and the audience don't care if you're a black, trans, male, bald head, half dreadlocks, whatever it is. They don't care. What, what have you got to say? What can you say? 
And that's the thing I love about the poetry audience now. Well, I felt every single word. I found a complete copy of Naked because I was really interested in what you had to say about, well, what you and Melvin Brown both had to say about that particular poem, that you wrote that poem. As it appeared in the book, was almost as it had poured yeah. out of you. And then when you read it back, it made you cry. Yeah. And then when you recorded it, it was only changed a little. Yeah. Yeah. It was powerful. And yeah. I downloaded another one about Joy Gardner and another yeah. one about Stephen Lawrence because I also I reviewed a film called Ultraviolence by Ken Farrow, which is oh, yeah. a follow-up to another one uh, about police brutality. Yeah. It all feels really like something is happening and it might be changing things for good slowly but surely. I think right now we are owning the black experience and we're saying you know it's relevant and it's important and in terms of black writers you know um, I've been involved in the Black Writers Guild this is like a union we want to set up for black writers. I've never felt so united and connected to all these other black writers in the country. And I'm almost like the oldest one there, you know what I mean? There are all these young people who are enthusiastic and everything. There's the guy who um, plays 11 aside football with 30-year-olds. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, um, it's, it's, I think it's just really uh, fascinating. I feel really proud. This, I think this is a really good moment. On that note, it has been absolutely brilliant talking with you. Are we you. finished? Hopefully we'll do it again. Stay safe.